Welcome to the Blueprint. All right, James, how you doing, man? What's up, SJ, man? How you doing? How's everyone doing today? I ain't doing too bad, man. It's nice weather out here in London. Sun is shining. I'm excited for our guest we have later, Ash. Guys, living the dream. Used to work in a corporate job. Now it's turned to an entrepreneur. And I know from my experience, I wanted to start out, have a bit of a financial base, make some money. What is it that trigger in your mind that said, I want to move on from this life? For me, it goes back a very long time. I would say when I was four years old, my mom said to me, you can be anything you want to be. It's very cliche, but she, I said, what can I be when I'm older? Kind of looking for guidance, right? So I thought, okay, cool. So from that point, it kind of opened this door in my mind of anything is possible. Is it important to have people that have your back 24-7? Because a lot of us, a lot of us out here, we're not privileged enough to kind of have that mother figure, that father figure. How important do you think it is to have that person from a young age on your back sending you, you can do this, you can be who you want to be? I think it's very important. From the age of three to eight is the developmental age for a child where a lot of your core beliefs about yourself are being formed. Psychologists will talk about this age as a critical time period. For a lot of people, the main problems they have as an adult stem from issues and trauma they experience during that time. So if you have positive experiences and you have things that liberate you and open your mind to possibilities, then mate, it's, it's just it just changes the game as you get older because you don't have these limiting beliefs. You have positive beliefs about yourself. You can achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. Do you know what I mean? So that's, uh, I think it was very powerful for me. But there was actually a specific incident where I processed something as a kid that made me think, there's levels to this. Mm, tell him. Drop the knowledge on me. <laughs> it's coming. This is free as well, you know. I know we're going to be releasing all the platform for free, but you guys oh, better on. be paying for this level of knowledge right here. SJ is about to drop. Yeah, I've been I've been in JB's pocket since the age of nineteen. Nah. Fleece, fleece no more. I can. They used to call it scrounging, but you know, I call it business. <laughs> the the moment was. I was six years old and I was on a Kingfisher airline in India. Well, a lot of people know Kingfisher because the CEO is very notorious. His name is Vijay Malia. He's known for his very flashy, flamboyant lifestyle. So when we used to get on the planes back then, they would have a video of him saying, welcome to the Kingfisher experience. And he'd be there drinking a champagne in his suit. And I remember growing up because we would go back to India where a lot of the majority of the people I would see there would be a lot less privileged than I was growing up in the Western world in Ireland. But when I seen him and I processed it as a six-year-old and I thought, he owns this plane. Then I looked out the window and I seen 10 more Kingfisher airline planes. And I thought, this man, he owns all these planes. Like we have two cars at our house. But this man has about 100 planes. Mm. So that's when I realized there was levels to, to wealth. There was levels to ownership in businesses. So, uh, what, was, what was your knee-jerk reaction at that young age? Was it very much in awe of this man? Or was your mind already kind of machinating, thinking, how the hell did he find himself in this position? Why does it happen to some people and not me? Or was it simply, I have to get to the top as quickly as possible? Mate, you know what it was? And this is where I, what I said at the beginning comes in to great effect. When my mom said, you can be anything you want to be when you're mm. older. I looked at him and I thought, yeah. this guy is the boss. You know, yeah. I had I always had a dreams of being a very competitive person and always rising to the top in whatever I did. Whenever I wanted to do something, I wanted to be the best at it. I'm sure most of you guys out there feel the same, right? If you're even clicking on this podcast, it shows you have that kind of innate nature within you. Absolutely. And for all the, all the listeners, it's like competition is what drives innovation. It's what drives mm. people to do better for themselves come up with better solutions and add to the world hey this is going on like this but I think I could do it better I think I could work with smart people to make this happen in a more efficient way in a more productive way in a more sustainable way whatever way that might be for you whatever your dreams are so when I seen him I thought if I can be whatever I want to be why can't I be like this guy 
like obviously the blueprint in my mind forgive the pun it was not necessarily oh i want to be an entrepreneur i want to be a businessman but it was very much like hey that's possible and then as i got older and older i realized i filled in the gaps in my knowledge of like yeah. how do you actually get to that stage where you have ownership of so much or you have so much command it's very interesting you say that because I was thinking, are people born with this mentality? Or does it take their environment? Does it take the way they were raised? Because I know back in the day, I wanted to do my own thing, but I never knew how to go about it, right? I never had that aha moment until actually quite recently, which was simply working in a corporate job and seeing what it does to people. It takes a certain type of mentality. And that is what I've observed, that of a yes man. And that who is willing to work towards someone else's dream instead of their own. Yeah. And the thing is, I've seen time and time again, guys that will enter the game in their 20s, starry-eyed, world at their feet, frankly, coming out of the best unis, all the potential, all the degrees. And where do they go? They go to work at a big faceless corporation to make some guy on the other side of the world richer. But really, where's the fulfillment? Where is that self-fulfillment? And I think a lot of people need to get out of that state of mind before they get too old and they have both internal and external dependencies yeah the external dependency is kind of you get a girlfriend you get a wife you get kids you get a dog get a house you need that stable income by the time that you're 30 you're probably too far down that track but the internal dependency would be the stability and the ease of life that comes with it show up to work every day don't really have to put too much creativity or effort into it right you play the game and you can survive on that so it's about trying to make sure you don't fall into that mentality. Do not take the years of kind of up to mm -hmm. your mid-20s for granted because it's a very formative time in your life. Your mind is at its most malleable as you try and figure out who you are and who you want to be. And make sure you make the right decisions in that time that set you on the path you dreamt for yourself. 100%. To answer the question, like, is it something you're born with or is it something you can cultivate? And what does it take? What are trying to say, to summarize, it takes delusional optimism. Mm. You need to be delusionally optimistic yeah. that you can make it. Yeah. That, you know, this is difficult, but I can do it. Yeah. And I will show you. Yeah. I will show those people out there. So that's why. But why, but why don't most people have that mentality? Why is it that from at least what we have seen personally, such a small subset of society actually seems to have this mentality? Well, you know what? I think even not even all entrepreneurs have it, funny enough. Mm. Because when I worked in VC, uh, I saw a plethora of companies and met so many CEOs extremely intelligent men and women uh -huh. and not necessarily everyone had that sort of like hyper competitive like oh yeah i'm gonna do it no one can stop me like a very brash and abrasive forthright uh personality because obviously you and i it's very much who we are mm. we sort of we want we want something we say it out loud mm. and then we go forward and do the work required mm. but not everybody's like that mellow well, i mean to be honest a lot of people get stuck in between the stages you just mentioned right they have the idea of who they want to be but there's this huge fucking chasm. There's yeah. this huge gray space where it's like, how do I get started? Yeah. What do I do? How do, how do I get the lifestyle? But you need to really think about what drives you. And not only that, how can you get there in the most efficient way, but a way that you love? Because they might not be the same thing, right? Yeah. You don't want to spend your whole life grinding away for your end goal, only to look up when you're 50 and think, oh, I never got to achieve X, Y, and Z because I had other things on my mind and I was so focused on the end goal that I didn't have time to enjoy the journey. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's go on to the podcast with Ashley. So today, here with Ashley. How you doing, mate? Yeah, very good. Thank you, bud. Good. It's yeah, good to meet you, Ashley. Yeah, it certainly has. Why are you not too off late? Uh, really, just focusing on the New Year's venture. Because obviously since we last actually spent time together, it was double tap. And now since yeah. then, unfortunately that has uh, no longer exists. And now it's a new company called Volunteer. Nice. So actually I haven't heard of double tap. 
before. Can you just kind of yeah, elaborate a bit? Of course, yeah. So Double Tap was really just um, my, my way of getting out of finance, but it was also what I thought was a pretty good idea at the time. Essentially, the way it worked was it was an app that allowed bars and restaurants to incentivize and reward their customers in exchange for social media posts. So to give you a tangible example, you go to like a Vodka Revs or something, you know, you get a nice meal, you post it with you and your mate, a picture, tag them, get 20 likes or something, and the app would track it and then deliver you with, you know, a discount code, a couple of free drinks or something like that. It was really, the aim was, you know, to give small bars, independent restaurants, things like that, a, a scalable and easy means to basically get some exposure. Sounds like the first version of Instagram. If you remember back in 2010, they did something quite similar. Yeah, uh, to be honest, that, that part I don't know. It was more a case of, you know, like a bar's social media. Usually, even if they do a really, really good job, they might just get a thousand people, right? And they're actually already customers. How do you get new customers as a bar these days? Unless somebody walks past it, usually it's through word of mouth, isn't it? So, you know, social media is the way we do word of mouth these days. It's a scalable approach. So... You know, if I wanted to show people a cool place that I've been to, bang, I just snap it on yeah. my story, right? Well, wait, before, before we jump more into that, right, well, you mentioned there, like, you were working in finance. Yep. Well, I remember you were at Goldman Sachs, wasn't it? At Goldman Sachs, but then before, then I left there to go to a startup hedge fund. So what, what happened internally for you to want to make that change? So I imagine a lot of people who are in your, are in your shoes currently, mm. probably working a corporate job that they fucking hate. Yeah, they're not enjoying it to be, <laughs> to, you know. To yeah, be quite absolutely. Um, so how? Yeah, what happened? So I'd always had visions of doing something myself, you know, because I knew from an early age that you know this day it's very difficult to kind of get to certain levels of financial security, freedom, etc. If you work for somebody else, um, so it was always in the back of my mind. I thought in the meantime, finance, good place to go, you know, good stamps, good credibility. Good money. Good money as well, that's what I thought, yeah, lifestyle that comes with it. But, well, first thing that was, you know, people should know is that finance, there's an extra zero cut for salaries of what it used to be. You know, if you think you're you're retiring at the age of 32 after busting busting yourselves for 10 years or something, you're not going to anymore, right? You're going to be working like everybody else until mm-hmm. later on. Um, but the other thing was, I guess, you know, like I thought I would pick something up along the way in terms of an idea or, or skills that I could then go and apply to something I'd do elsewhere. Unfortunately, what I did was equity trading and there's not really a great deal of tangible skills to take elsewhere or to do your own thing, consultancy, nothing like that. So essentially, I kind of just realized I was going to be in a position of those classic golden handcuffs. And if I didn't do something about it soon, I was stuck. With, I would have been stuck with banking for the rest of my life. You know? was, it, was it kind of a timing thing as well? Did you find you had enough kind of free time to work on these ideas? Was it more the environment you were around wasn't conducive to ideas? Yeah, I think actually two things. It's probably the opposite. It was that the, when I was working for the hedge fund, I'm, you know, I know people talk about hours and stuff like that. This genuinely was 15, 16 hours a day, right? It was brutal. Um, what time would you go in and come back? So I'd usually get in for about six because we traded various markets around then and usually maybe around nine, nine thirty or something like that would be wrapping things up. So yeah, it was pretty brutal. Um, my boss who I love, he was a great guy, super intense and really, really smart. But you know, I once had like four packages waiting outside my flat when I got back and it was four screens so that I could then log on at home if I needed to, as if nine thirty wasn't late enough, right? How generous of <laughs> Yeah, right. But um, 
But anyway, so uh, so yeah, actually was the like I said the opposite there in terms of there wasn't enough time for me to do any kind of side hustling really, you know, if I'm honest. And then the other thing was that that just kind of just to slowly wore me down, and I kind of felt my creativity and drive to do anything else Absolutely. and ambition and stuff sort of disappearing away. And it was actually my family that one day said, because it had stressed me out a lot, you know, I, I, I looked like a different person, if I'm honest with you. Mm. And I think my family one weekend basically just sort of sat me in a living room and they just said, look, we don't mind what you want to do or support you, whatever, but, you know, we just basically want to see our son back, which I thought, you know, as someone who's close to their wow. family, that was quite a deep thing to kind of hear. And I, and I sensed it and I realised, you know, I'd been, you know, distant from them, not because of choice, but, you know, just because Absolutely. of time and everything. Yeah, you just like right. to suck your way. Exactly. How many, how many years was it that you were kind of stuck in that corporate lifestyle? That was, so I was at Goldman for about six years in this hedge fund for about, sorry, yeah, six, five or six years, and then hedge fund for about one year. So Goldman was actually not too intense. Like everybody yeah. says X, Y, Z. You know what? It wasn't. Like it was perfectly doable and I really liked the people I worked with. But like I said, it was going to be corporate, moving up that ladder slowly, and it was just not. That's not the dynamism that I wanted in my life, yeah. you know. So that at least the startup hedge fund gave me an opportunity to maybe be first person in the door at something that becomes a billion dollar fund, right? There you go. Now that's your yeah. leap to, you know, skipping a load of stages. Yeah, so you had to sell all your time. Exactly, and there is one other thing probably worth mentioning about that startup hedge fund job that was quite cool. Was it was really cool. The stuff I was thrown into was amazing, and my boss, because he was so stretched, and we were looking at so many companies and things like that, he would send me off to things like IPO lunches and stuff. So you know where a company will be going IPO, so they're going to do a roadshow, mm -hmm. and they'll meet with all potential investors. And we used to buy into, you know, subscribe to a load of IPOs, and so I'd get to go to these these hotels midway through the day, sit, and essentially get a chance to hear from these founders, you know, and I think in most instances, you're expecting that they're going to be these wizards that were sat in yeah. their bedroom doing X, Y, Z. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But in, in this particular instance, it just, a lot of them, they weren't, you know, like DocuSign and a few other companies. I just remember thinking, kind of felt like a normal guy who just had an idea. Maybe he wasn't even in the space that he was kind of accustomed to, yeah. but you just took it and ran with it. And, you know, it just showed me that, You've got to just take a step, or you're never going to have ah, that opportunity. Yeah, so open that possibility. Yeah, I think so. These are just normal people. I, I could be one of them. Why am I on this side of the table and I could be on that side? Exactly. Yeah, ah, exactly that. Interesting. But yeah. it's interesting that you had to put yourself in that position, right? Because I feel maybe a lot of people, you know, the, the position you were in, were trying to start their own company, are kind of sitting down, brainstorming, trying to get ideas. They're trying to make ideas out of thin air, but you're showing that you have to kind of put yourself out there yeah. and put yourself in a position to see these and they will come, either the idea or the inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, I mean, and I think it's that these people, everyone's had an idea before, right? But it's the 0.1% of people that usually act upon it, right? Yeah. And I've even heard people go, oh yeah, I had the idea for HelloFresh <laughs> right. before it was HelloFresh. Well, that's, you know, I'm more embarrassed for you, but to saying that, you know, because if you, if you really had the idea and you didn't go for it, then, you know, more for you, you know? So yeah, you hear a lot of people who, who talk, talk the talk. I'm not saying, you know, like I just think everybody is capable of at least taking that first step. And from that first step, you'll learn something, right? Like even if you decide to try and open up a bakery because, you know, you're gluten-free and you want to do yeah. gluten-free stuff, but it yeah. doesn't work out. Well, you've got the bug now potentially and you know, you learn how to manage finances. You learn mm -hmm. this, you learn that. Absolutely. And then it's your choice. Then you can either continue on that entrepreneurial path or at least you can kind of 
maybe go back into a corporate role knowing that you, you gave it a go and you're not sat yeah. there wondering, you know? Yeah. You know, I think you get to learn how things work a bit better, I guess, and seeing the end-to-end process and not just seeing yourself as like a cog in a bigger, yeah. bigger system, but rather be able to replicate a bigger system on a smaller scale. Exactly. Yeah. It's quite liberating, to be honest. It's liberating. It's really cool as well because, you know, like outside of the stresses and strains of the day-to-day life of a founder or anything like that, you know, like exactly what you said there, Suraj. You get to see the, the inner workings of a company firsthand because you're yeah. doing it, right? You're the only person in the company in a lot of instances. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you never knew how to incorporate a company. Boom, there's your first step. Mm-hmm. You never knew how to put together some, a basic cash flow yeah. model. Boom, there you go. Yeah, and suddenly you learn a load much. there, yeah. right? I'll file something with the HMRC. Yeah. Oh, don't even get me started, <laughs> man. The, the, the most exciting parts of running yeah. a business, obviously. Exactly, mate. Yeah, don't get me started with the HMRC. Actually, there's probably a whole bunch of letters sat back in my flat that I need to get cracked into. But yeah. We'll cut that out of the book. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, don't worry. If, if there's any, like, any other founders out there, probably in the similar instance, it's like, it's the last thing on your, it's the last thing on your list, usually. Right. You're just it's like delayed and delayed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just before we move on to maybe talk more about the companies you've kind of run yourself, when you went from kind of a very stable corporate job, how did you think about failure? Because a lot of the time, failure cripples people, right? Fear of Mm. kind of starting, like, what if I don't know what I'm doing? Maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome. How did you kind of ride out of that wave? It's a really good question, actually, because I, you know, thinking back to it, it was a real sort of you mentioned the word liberating earlier. It really was liberating after a while. So I remember like, leave, when I first handed in my notice, right, you know, you get brokers, people you used to trade with, right, sending you, Ash, you sure about this? Here's a job offer here. Only because yeah. you'd have ended up trading with them and giving them commissions. So that, yeah. that no one had your best interests at heart. But so they were like, you know, you'd, people were firing job offers at you. You then have to, you're then in a position where, okay, well, you don't, you can't go out to all these dinners you used to. Guess what? You're selling that watch you had. If you had a car, you're selling that car you had. You're not that same well, we person. We need to take currencies, guys, to start. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, but look, look, people just need to know the reality. And But that's a fine thing. Like, I honestly, now that I'm back on a position of kind of financial security and I'm doing something I really love, I don't have any instinct to go back to buying that watch or buying that car or something like that because... That never really excited me in the way that I thought it did. But yeah, yeah. so it was kind of like when I left, it was liberating. And that was almost felt like at the start, failure. You know, when you're having to sell a watch that you did so much work to try and get in the first place or whatever, it yeah. felt like failure. But you start a step back as well, maybe? Yeah, a step back, exactly. Definitely that. You know, you've worked all this time at one career ladder, taking a, starting totally from scratch. But then your own perspective of what failure is changes completely. My idea is not, is a failure is not, is now not actually going at something and it not working. My idea of failure Mm -hmm. is staying in something you're not happy in consistently. That's failure. Even even the contrast of that sounds like your idea of success changed. Like from going from wanting a nice watch, nice car, whatever, it's like now wanting the freedom to work on your own idea. That's a freedom in itself, right? to me, that's a, that is being successful. Like being wake up every day, do something you actually want to do, mm. not have to work for someone or something that you have no interest in or no passion for. Like to me, that's a lot more valuable than a Rolex. Dude, absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. And it, and it is, you know, the the feeling that that I have every mo- most days, right? Yeah. Everyone has bad days, but most days, 
yeah, by far and away outweighs nice dinners, man. Really, really does. <laughs> and actually, you know what? My taste has changed. I literally don't even like a nice dinner anymore. Yeah, <laughs> give me a Nando's. Give me a Nando's and I'm all good. Thanks. I'm all good. <laughs> That's a cute Nando's there. If you guys are listening, you know. <laughs> so, mate, so once you left the hedge fund, because we met, just a bit of background for any listeners, me and Ash met in NEF, the New Entrepreneurs Foundation. Mm. That was what, 2019? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right? yeah. So, did you go from the hedge fund directly there, or was there anything in between? No, so I went to the hedge fund. Started, I chucked a bit of money into what I'd started, which was Double Tap to create an MVP with some outsourced developers. Had a bit of traction going, shall we say, probably six months into that, that, that someone suggested NEF to me. So right, that was okay. when I kind of went into NEF, really. So what, what happened from there? What, how was the transition from Double Tap to Volunteero? Yeah, so Double Tap basically was just, it, it didn't work. You know, COVID was also not an ideal situation to have there, but you know what? Oh, so you, you kicked it off during COVID? It, I kicked it off actually probably about a year and a half, two years before COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, simply put, you know, looking back in hindsight, I know the reasons it would have failed even regardless of COVID, COVID to be totally honest with you. But sometimes you just wouldn't know those until, you know, like we said, until you're in the thick of it and you learn something you wouldn't know and you had to learn it through doing it, right? Um, so anyway, COVID was the, you know, drew the final curtains on that really and that was what, March 2020. Um, so I basically just took two weeks of just downtime. Believe it or not, it was really bizarre. It was kind of almost, it felt a bit like a relief for me at that time because, you know, you've been stressing and worrying. Yeah. You, you build up this problem in your head like, oh, this, you know, if this fails, what happens, you know, my identity is in this thing and I've told everyone about it, I've pitched it, I've raised friends and family money, what happens when this all goes? And guess what? Everyone goes, mate, you did did your best and nobody else has given it a go and, and, you know, if it's an investor, they're like, dude, like, don't worry, we're we're adults, we know what it's all about. So suddenly, like, all these big, these fears I had were kind of allayed and I, I was almost able to, like, relax for a bit, but as anyone, as an entrepreneur can attest to, two weeks, to two to weeks was plenty. Two <laughs> weeks was plenty. Um, so yeah, I was back with my family. I started doing a bit more of the volunteering work that I was already doing. And then, you know, I've got uh, free headspace now to kind of think creativity, creatively. Sorry. Um, and anyway, I just, jumping back into this volunteering, you know, I was just like, the process of this is just so shit, really. Yeah. And I was like, this needs to be resolved. This needs to be sorted. And, you know, now I've got the time on my hands to, you know, go about sorting it. And to be honest, it didn't start with a, as a business venture. Genuinely, it started really, really organically. And if I could ever do something in this same organic way of solving your own problem without a business in mind, it's the way I'd probably like to approach it because we just, uh, I picked up the phone to some CEOs of charities, had a bit of a chat with them, understood if the problem is an issue on their side, you know, managing yeah. volunteers, is it tough? You know, do you waste time, etc. And then once I'd sort of mapped out a basic idea of a tool in my head, pitched it to some people, you know, uh, who is my now co-founder, Luca. And he was like, dude, yeah, let's just, let's spend some time on this and let's, let's build out a tool and let's just sort of see where it goes. Really, that was it. There was no idea of revenue, business plan, yeah, global yeah. expansion, all that stuff. It was just, let's build a tool, give it to someone to so see what they think. Something personally related to it. Exactly, exactly. It was the name of solving my own problem, literally. Yeah. I wanted to give it to my charity so I could have the app to work through as opposed yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the shit I was doing And Luca before. as well, sounds like you kind of just threw him the idea and he picked it up straight away. Or was there a period of, I have to 
kind of selected this guy, then you had to spend some time persuading him? No, it's a really good question. So no, again, that came uh, really interesting. Everybody who's a business, shall we say, business side co-founder as opposed to a technical co-founder, one, they're either desperately looking for a CTO, right? <laughs> or they've got one and they've got some miraculous random story as to how they came to meet, usually. Yeah. You, and it's and it's really annoying because as the one who's not got the co-founder, how do you replicate these miraculous stories? So I can only give one tip around that, and it is just network and network so and Luke, network. Luca's the CTO. Yeah, well, Luca is actually, yeah, basically co-CTO with one of his friends from university. Right, okay. So to give you an idea of how we met Luca, I was told by a, another founder friend, probably about four years ago now, I've got this guy you should speak to. He, I, I lived with him in Zurich, you know, mm-hmm. he's a friend of mine. He's a you know developer, have a chat with him. We had a chat, I couldn't convince him that Double Tap was the next big thing, sadly, but we got on like a house on fire and we just, you know, ever since we stayed in touch mm-hmm. on a regular basis, we bounced ideas off each other and we got to yeah. know each other completely separately just as friends by that point. So That's... that when the time came that I had the idea, the he guy. trusts me, he knows me, yeah. and, and you know, it was that bit easier than kind of going into something totally cold because Picking a co-founder is a big deal, man. Yeah. Big deal. And if, if we just extend that slightly, if we go to, I don't know how many people you've hired, maybe you can give us a rough idea. Or... Hired? Yes. Uh, four or five over the period of Double Tap, and then after this funding round, well, so far, two at Volunteer, and then very soon that'll be six, maybe. Well, congrats. That's great. Yeah. And do you kind of look for the same qualities that you looked in the co-founder? Is it very much you have to buy into this vision as much as I do? Or is it maybe much more empirical kind of skills based? I think I think at that, the top level, like co-founder level, yeah, you have to agree on the vision, otherwise you will just hit too many hurdles and teething issues between you. Because as long as your overall vision, but also I feel your morality, so your moral compass and how you approach life and things, I think those things need to be aligned, mm-hmm. much like Right, if you try and get into a relationship, I don't care if you like that music, you like that music, or you like this, you like sport, you like to sit on the sofa. In most instances, that's not the stuff that matters. The stuff that matters is, do you have the same vision for how you want your life to turn out? Yeah. And do you have a similar moral code? And I actually think the same is applies with founders. And so yeah. luckily, my co-founders, um, we are exactly the same in terms of we want to do good, we get the sense that we're not like these hardcore business types that might go and screw each other over, so we trust each other. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And it happens, right? It really yeah, does. Yeah. So that's the good thing, that, that we kind of all vibe on that on that sense, and we definitely have the same vision for the future. With the, in terms of your other point, with other hires, do I have to have them totally buy into the vision? Not, not It's not as important. I would like them to, because you know, you're all aiming towards the same goal, yeah. But you know, you could actually have someone who delivers excellent, excellently for your business who maybe doesn't actually totally agree with elements of your vision, potentially. Yeah, so, it might be incentivized with something else. Exactly. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. yeah it's, it's lovely, especially given we're doing something good, I think for us in Volunteero, uh, alignment with our mission is important. Um, do you emphasise that? To new hires, like we the do. culture of the company and try to actively create that? We do, we do, absolutely. So for example, you know, when we're hiring, we say that, you know, although volunteering isn't, and previous volunteering experience isn't mandatory, it is, you know, highly beneficial. Yeah. So we make that clear in our job descriptions. 
because yeah, if you kind of have volunteered, you know how to face the problem and you're going to sympathise with what we're trying to build here, you yeah. know. So it is just helpful because, you know, on that day where you're feeling pretty rough and you can't be bothered with work and stuff like that, that might just be which mm. what kind of keeps you going through that day, you know. True. Kind of walk in and see your team there, smiling faces, kind of motivated on a Ex- Monday morning. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and actually, that's a really good point as well in that, that seeing your team there. I think most people, I was chatting with someone at the end of the other day and he had a real good point in terms of, you know what, like as long as personality fits are there, that's also, so as much as we like mission, it's really a personality fit, you know, like... There's a classic, like, would you want to go for a beer with them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, would you, exactly that. Um, And it's really interesting because the personality fit's always evolving because that's exactly how me and my, uh, our first hire, our head of growth, you know, we grew up playing rugby together. You know, we've been friends through university. We love to go and have a beer together, right? Whereas Luca's, Luca would, Luca and Kato would much rather go, well, Luca at least, would much rather go for a hike. He doesn't drink. He's vegan, you know? Like, yeah. they're, they're quite different in that sense, but we definitely just all vibe, similar humour, that kind of thing. So, nice. yes, yeah, personality fit is very important. And maybe should we kind of uh, double tap, excuse the pun, on the uh, business itself in terms of the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so essentially what Volunteer is, it's, it's a platform to help charities manage their volunteers more efficiently and also improve on volunteer engagement and retention. And we do that through a digital platform. Uh, so in short, how it works is a charity basically has uh, a web-based, almost think of it as like their volunteering CRM, and they can manage yeah. everything from New volunteer recruit, new volunteer recruitment applications, and then actually deploying them onto tasks, activities, and things, and then also reporting and in impact and things like that. The volunteers on the flip side have an app or a web-based app, and they can essentially manage all aspects of their data, their volunteering, things they want to do, things they don't want to do, you know, communication with the charity, all of that in one place basically. So then, when you identified that issue, you you were volunteering at a charity. And then you saw the process was just kind of sucked overall. And that was, so was one of the sort of qualifying questions to develop this idea that there's a high churn rate for volunteers, for, for CEOs. Yes, uh, and there, to be honest with you, there is. And there's elements of churn that we'll never be able to solve, right? You're a student, you stop being a student, yeah. you know, you get a new job, you know, these types of things that, that we won't be able to deal with. But this churn that happens definitely that we can help to solve that process yeah from bad process you, if you've been communicating poorly and some of the app is churned before they're even a proper volunteer right like for example what we always hear is oh i applied to be a you know i applied to be a volunteer and i didn't hear back for three months mm, wow. what the hell you know for example for us that's just a very simple automated email that goes out to them yeah. to show them the stages they're going to have to go through thank them Right, and our system does it for them. There you go, there's a bunch of people that you've saved and you've avoided losing and, nice. and you know, you've maintained communication with. So there's so much, the irony is like, we're not doing anything totally revolutionary, especially when you look at the private sector and things that are happening. It's just a sector that is so, so far behind mm-hmm. everybody yeah. else that we're just implementing simple efficiency, simple processes, simple digital technology to basically yeah. help totally, you know, revolutionize the processes. Optimizing what they've got. Going Optimizing on. what they've got exactly. And yeah. look, it's it's going to help for you know for everybody. It's different. So for me, 
I didn't know how bad processes were on the charity side. All I knew is I was what was called a befriender. Basically, I speak to an elderly person every week, right, to see if they're okay. Mm -hmm. And then I'm supposed to report back through a Word document I report in. And, you know, right. and it was just all awful. But I then had more capacity in my hands, so I wanted to befriend more people. And I'd heard from my volunteer managers, basically, we've got 5,000 people on the waiting list. We can't get enough volunteers in to match them. And here I am, willing to, you know, volunteer and do more. Yeah. But I have to email them, email them again, email them again, and I'm sat there thinking, well, from my perspective as a volunteer, why isn't there just one place I can go and request access to match with a bunch of other people? It's super yeah, simple yeah, tech, yeah, right? Yeah. And that was really what gave me the initial uh, thought process to start investigating this further. But then when you when you kind of unpack it all and you start to speak to more people, it becomes clearer and clearer how messed uh, the kind of processes and stuff that they've got are and how much time is being wasted. So if we look at your product then, so it kind of sounds like it's two-dimensional, two-faced, so you have the kind of customer-facing side mm -hmm. and they apply through some kind of app or...? Yeah, so, so they say we go into a charity. What we do is we essentially give them access to our technology they will then migrate all of their volunteer data and things like that onto our platform. Is that a difficult process, a migration or? No, not really. No, no, pretty straightforward. At the moment we do it through the back end from our developers, but soon, you know, we'll have to allow them to do their own sort of uploads and things. But um, no, pretty straightforward. Usually they've only got spreadsheets anyway, so they've got the data right there to hand. Yeah. It's not yeah. like they're coming from one system to another mm -hmm. in most instances. So we, yeah, so, so we get them on board. They upload their, their volunteers and it's basically an invite-only app. So anyone on the street at this stage wouldn't be able to just download it and get going. So you've got to go through a charity. You then get given access to the app. You get a welcome email with your password, download details, all that. And then once you download it, you're in their environment. So you can start seeing all the volunteering opportunities and stuff that's available to you specifically from your charity. But it's worth talking about because that's a very simple B2B software play. Yeah. But where what we have raised this money to do is to essentially go, right, what's next? So we've built the platform in a way that one volunteer can volunteer for numerous charities. Okay, so the next step for us is to build this ecosystem and uh, basically say that if one person off the street goes, I want to volunteer, they Google it, they find Volunteero. They've got all those charities near them, all the types of opportunities they need to find, and they can apply in the app super seamlessly. And it's just, uh, yeah, really simplifies the volunteering process. It's also a B2C marketplace. Now. Exactly, yeah. So you take the BN. I'm really happy about the way that this has naturally evolved because marketplaces, you need to hit them hard, fast, and you yeah. need to have a lot of capital behind you to make it happen, yeah. right? Yeah. Problem is, that doesn't happen with volunteering. You, you wouldn't be able to do that with volunteering because people would be like, you know, well, how would you ever generate revenue from this? How would it work, you mm -hmm. know? So the way we've approached it is B2B. So we solve the charity's problems yeah. first and know that we can have a revenue stream. And then we can build the marketplace on top of that because nice. we'll have built up critical mass on the on one side, so the supply of volunteering opportunities. Yeah. Therefore, the demand side will naturally come when we build the interface Absolutely. to that to happen. And they're not specifically relying on that channel, it's just an additional channel for more volunteers. It's just an additional channel, exactly. So they'll still have our registration process sat on their website. So yeah. if they're doing marketing, TV ads and things like that, people can still get into volunteer through that charity, yeah. but they can also go, I don't know what the hell I want to do, here's well, the one place interesting to go. for you in the future is when a charity hopefully eventually comes to you and says, hey, we actually get more traffic of volunteers from you guys than we do from ourselves, so. Exactly, what we're, what we're quite interested to see is what those numbers look like.
right? Because yeah. you know, there's a lot of like the research into all this stuff is sometimes a little bit poor, and it's you know, it's kind of like yeah, like they do research papers to understand what is the barrier to, barrier to volunteering. And one of the biggest ones is I don't know where to go or to get started, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I, our expectation, particularly you know, uh, you know, like millennials, Gen Zs, and everything like that. Our expectation now is. If there's anything I want, there's one place to go. Just eat for food, delivery for food, whatever it is, Uber yeah. for, to, for you know taxis. And so our expectation is there's one easy place to go, and that doesn't exist in volunteering. So we're intrigued. If once we draw, you know, reduce that barrier to entry, what, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. So just to give you an idea of numbers, you know, we're still very early stage startup. We've got about 5,000 volunteers on the platform, okay, right. that have come from the charities that we work yep. with. Okay. Now, we haven't been out there, we've not done any SEO, we've not done any paid ads, anything like that. And we've had 2,500 people um, sign up as like pre-launch volunteers, pre-launch, you know, the marketplace pre-launch, should we yeah. say. So, I mean, obviously we don't expect this to be that same proportion all the way through as we grow, but that's essentially, you know, increasing all of our charities by, you know, whatever it is, 50%, you know, yeah. their volunteer numbers by 50%. I don't know if that's actually what it's going to look like in the long run, but yeah. it's an interesting thought, good, good thought science. experiment. Yeah, good exactly. Science. Definitely good science. The important thing is, right, maybe you're not going out and getting these customers, but you are building partnerships and gaining customers in the charity sense, right? So mm. how, maybe can you shine some light on how you got your first customer? I know you said you kind of called up CEOs. Uh, how did you take them there? Was it referrals? Did you kind of keep cold calling? How did it work? Yeah, good question. So. I think any founders out there that are trying to offload the sales process, just quick tip, don't do that yet. You know, you've got to cut your teeth. You really have to, um, because you learn a lot through those initial One of the most important skills, right? Being yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's direct customer feedback. And, mm -hmm. you know, your business might pivot because of those first 10 attempts at sales, you know, because you realize, oh, you're trying to address this problem, but actually this is the big problem, you know? Yeah. So that's important. But the way I did it is first, client was the charity I actually volunteered for, which yep. was cool. So that was just, you know, we just basically gave it to them, started solving more of the problems and use cases they fired at us. And then I, we just went, look guys, we actually want to turn this into a business because we think we can solve problems at a wider scale and really do something special here. Try to figure out we have a price model and we then charged them. So, you know, it was almost like the ultimate freemium. I think they had it for six months or so before. And loads of stuff. And then did. And then we were in the ditch. You know, like, can you imagine? No, now they're on the second year of renewal now, which is great. So, uh, But then in terms of first customers after that, it was a case of um, not much cold calling, actually. I don't know if that was me just being a bit of a bottle drop on that front. Uh, <laughs> but in my head, in my head, and I actually do stick with this. I do stick with this. At that time, I needed people to know who volunteered. They at least have heard of Volunteero. Yeah. If I do cold calling, say I can do 20 decent cold calls a day, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Or if I spend that time in this building, building out some kind of automated email campaign and set flying that out, how many people have got eyes on something to do on the name Volunteero by that point? Yeah. It's much, much more. And so for me, uh, particularly to get in that initial traction, I wasn't trying to go pick my dream customer because I knew we, I would get turned away for a myriad of different reasons. I was trying to get low-hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. And low-hanging fruit will respond to a decently sculpted email campaign that, that mentions, you know, the problem you're trying to solve, how you're solving it, 
Uh, that's about it. And addresses them personally, you know, yeah. in personal touch. Exactly, and then you can do some of that stuff so easily with right. a bit of email marketing, you know. Like, yeah. the funny thing is, is like, particularly in, depending on what market you're in, in a lot of B2B stuff, they're so used to being sold now that they know there's no real, you know, it's unlikely you've gone and done any real personalization behind it. It only says, hi, their name, and right. I know you work at whatever, because, <laughs> because that's how these email marketing tools work now. Yeah. But you know what, like, if you've got a good proposition, I don't think they care too much about personalization. Don't get me wrong, we're now stepping to the, net, to the next level, hopefully, you know, where, particularly if we go and gunning after big, big customers, we're not sending out anything generic. We're spending time yeah. reading their blogs, reading about this, yeah. you know, learning what, what we can, and then going very, very razor focused on those top end guys. Mm-hmm. But even so, the lower end of this, like, like the tail end of the clients that we're going after, we're still probably gonna do that through, you know, automated emails and stuff like that. So yeah. that, that's how I kind of went about it initial demos, you know, trying to get them on board with a pricing model that we didn't really know. But at the time, it doesn't matter. Traction is traction. Whether that's the pricing model you end up with, it really doesn't matter, guys. You know, that's the important thing to mention. It's like having a conversation. You're in the room and then you can work out from there, Exactly, yeah. Get someone to pay for something and the rest of it, you know, you could kind of figure that out along the way. But you get someone to pay for products you've built, you know, you're on to something. So what kind of model have you set up now in terms of monetization? Is it a SaaS? Is it kind of... Yeah. Yeah, so it's a SaaS model. Charity will pay for the number of staff members they need access and the number of volunteers they need access. Uh-huh. To give you an idea of what those numbers look like, it'd be say £100 for a staff member for the year on average, £20 for a volunteer for the year on average. Mm-hmm. Um, depends where they fit in that, in, in the range that we've got, is based on the volume. Really, and just to let you know about how pricing models kind of evolved on that side of things, you know, we've kind of specked out, you know, bounced ideas around with every type of SaaS pricing model. This one made sense just because you've got to assess where your costs are going to come and when they're going to scale, and if that's because of the number of users, then you have to make sure you account for that because in the future, otherwise your margins are going to get absolutely torn to shreds. So we started out probably about like. Basically, oh, and the other thing is we start out monthly, so we were going to say oh, right. about a pound a volunteer per month sounds about right. <laughs> we learned literally wow. finger in the air and stuff, yeah, yeah. yeah, and maybe ten up for a volunteer for a staff member. That sounds about right. Immediately got they've to, at least ten x since then, which is crazy, right? Well, that That's was per adjusting. month. That was per month because we then immediately the first thing I learned is. I haven't got time to be chasing people up on monthly invoices, <laughs> you know, and charities. The other thing we learned as well, and again, this, these learnings you've got is, the other thing you learn is... The price of the charities. I didn't have the time to chase more revenue. That is a new one. That's hilarious. Believe it or not, as a CEO, and especially just remember some of these charities you get on at the early stage are small, so you know, you really chase them out on someone for sort of 58 quid. Like, come on. You know, that's not, it's, wow. it's not scalable. So where we got to quite quickly was, and the other reason is, they're not gonna, they are old school. Like a lot of the time, they just do everything through back transfers. Mm-hmm. So the idea of getting a nice seamless sort of um, onboarding and, you know, payment system involved. We got, we got GoCardless set up, we got Stripe set up, thinking they were gonna use it. They were all on our invoices, not a single one of our first 30 charities clicked on either of those. Right. Instead, they just paid us through back transfer every, every month. So, instead of getting to a situation where we're gonna to have to be chasing people with a bank of a thousand charities, that's gonna be big operational cost. We, get, we decided to take the call and we're only gonna do annual licensing. 
like paid nice. up front, even for the biggest guys. So that was a big change we made early on. Yeah. Uh, and then we also got to a point where we felt a bit more comfortable with our value add. Um, yeah. We pushed our pricing points. What, up. So what's the the current financial progress of the business, and then what what are you looking at in the next one to two years? Yeah. So we are approaching a hundred grand in annual recurring revenue, we bootstrapped to that level. So we probably could have continued to bootstrap if I'm honest with you. You know, we're getting to a point where we'll almost have all, all members of staff on and we're at a break even point. But you know, that's not what we want. We want to go bigger, you know, and we want to get to that ecosystem model as quickly as possible. And we've also got a lot of demand coming in that I'm a bit worried we would fail to, you know, service and deliver upon yeah. as well as we need to. So yeah, so about nearly approaching 100k in annual recurring revenue. Um, we've got about 30 charities on board, around 5,000 volunteers at this stage. So we've decided we are we are basically about to close our first round. We've gone for 300 grand in investment and got a seriously awesome bunch of angels behind us on this. Um, how, how much, if you don't mind saying, how much of the business are you giving away? Yeah, so we're doing a, so it'd be about 9%. We're doing a three money, three million pre-money valuation. Congrats. Um, yeah, thanks, awesome. Yeah, so it's that valuation piece is always just a bit of, again, finger in the air job, you know, but at the end of the day, you just, You've got to come up with some kind of figure that you feel like you can justify and know that you can get a bump on if you need to raise again. Because so otherwise you're, you're, you're a millionaire on paper now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm one year behind when I wanted it to happen. But <laughs> no, 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 I mean, yeah, no, that's the funny thing, isn't it? It's on paper and it means absolutely nothing. Yes. So. <laughs> soon, soon materialize. Stay soon one day, but like I said, mate, as much as I, you know, would like financial freedom, it's more about what we're doing yeah, now. The, journey, the buzz, yeah. oh yeah, the yeah, buzz yeah. is just, just class. You know, Long when you're all, you know, doing your high fives and stuff, and you're bringing a decent first client or something, it's just you can't beat that feeling, bro. It's so satisfying. I yeah, you got like the gong in the office and all of that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I'm trying to think about how to play that out. Actually, I really want cool things like that, but I'm trying to figure out what. I'd like it to be. We don't. We're not going to go proper cliche sales <laughs> or something. You know, and it feels a bit vulgar, doesn't it? We're dealing with charities. We're trying to do a good thing here, and you know, you've got a gun. So, right. Yeah. So no, I'm not sure. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I'm I think sure. a lot of other founders will take offence to that. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to get strongly worded emails. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe, I'm not sure. Now, I'll tell you what I think I'd like to have is we're going to have an office or something. I think there's going to be a wall and I think we're just going to, basically it's going to be a, you get a logo sticker of that charity that you've got mm. on board and you go slap that logo up there and nice. get a bit of a round of applause or something. I don't know. Like that. <laughs> nice, nice. And just before we move on as well, quickly on the pricing point, how hard was it to kind of convince existing customers to pay a bit more when you did that pricing kind of restructuring? So I wouldn't. So if I'm honest with you, that's why you want to try and figure your pricing model out soon in that first year, because look, at the end of the day, I don't have to move these guys onto a different pricing model. You know, that's not what's going to move the needle for us at this point. I just need to know going forward, I've got at least the right pricing model. And that's the great thing about having these early customers is you can speak very candidly to them. Give them that locked in price forever, right? Give them it, because it doesn't, it's meaningless in the great scheme of things. But what you gain from giving them that deal and making them feel special and part of the journey is you can go, look, Ian, for example, who is CEO of our first client, I go, Ian, dude, like, tell me, was this a problem, you know, getting this through? 
you know, what if I told you this pricing? What if I told you this? And, and you know, you can get some actual feedback about, mm-hmm. oh, well, I could have definitely gone to that, but that would have been mm-hmm. too far. Empirical feedback. Basically. Empirical feedback, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because pricing models really, look, it's a function of competitors that are out there. Um, it's a function of the value add that you're bringing. It's a function of your costs. It's a function of many different things. But at the end of the day, it's also a function of what's the perceived value and what they right. want to pay. And the only way you can get that is by either testing it uh, getting feedback or actually getting feedback from your live customers. Best way to do it, really. Yeah, then I'd say the best way is actually just listening to the market, um, because even though Ian might try and be as honest as he can, remember he is now still some to biased to some degree. Yeah. So even if he says, "Yeah, I could probably go up to that five grand mark you mentioned there," Ash, actually, you don't read them so well. Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've just. Uh, Pulled the wool over your eyes there, Ian. <laughs> you, now you tell me what you can pay. Yeah. <laughs> but you've already given him that value, right? And he's worked with you and he's comfortable with you and he's confident that you're going to do what you say and all of this, Exactly. Right? Yeah. So obviously the step to kind of convincing a new customer that is a lot more difficult. Yeah, exactly. Finding kind of how maybe do you deal with any pushback you might get on that? On the pricing, you mean? Yeah. Uh, no, it's a good question. It's a question we're going through at the moment because there's a competitor that exists in the market that we come across a lot that is probably, for most charities, you know, five if not eight times cheaper than we are, right? right? Um, now, you know, I know and can tell you adamantly sat here um, that it's because the product is absolutely dire, right? Like mm. it was built God knows how many years back, has barely been touched, it's a labyrinth, we get told it's clunky, we get told all of these different things. But when I'm listening to my salesperson, he goes, oh, they would better impacts and this is eight times more expensive, what can we do about it? And it's a really tricky conversation because you really want clients at this early stage, but you also want to get a bit of pricing discipline as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and ethically, you know, ethically, can you really be charging these crazily different pricing models across the board? So, um, so it's quite a hard conversation we're going through at the moment. For me, it is how do we how do we actually sell against that product as opposed to let's discount the hell out of our own product, right? Yeah. Let's learn more about every single area where we beat them every bit of time that we save and let's go about it that way um, and luckily we've just posted a fair few clients off them recently so we're, we've got nice. even even better kind of credentials in terms of trying to pitch that one going forward but yeah we get pitch back, pushed back all the time and I know you have a hard stop at one so we've got a few minutes left yeah. maybe you could kind of shed light on what you see the vision for the next five ish years of your company yeah absolutely oh god man sometimes you just can't feel like you can look much beyond right the yeah idea. but I think that's, that's the skill of, I think, founder, whether I've got it or not, I've not got a clue. But um, the skill of a founder is being able to balance that vision with the, right, what do I need to do this week, right? Yeah. Isn't it? That's the key. Um, so where do I see the vision? Uh, look, I would really, really like to be that sort of, that com- one company that's synonymous with volunteering, basically. Mm-hmm. That is what I want. I want it to be well-recognized. But I also want it to, you know, prove its worth. I want to hopefully reduce those barriers and increase the access to volunteering. So I want it to be, you know, kind of revolutionise the space. I also would like to then be in different markets by, you know, five years or so time, definitely. In terms of geography? Or- yeah, in terms of geography, um, you know, I think, again, it's something, you know, we, we get people inbound from charities in the US, in Canada, in Australia, things like that all the time. And we just can't really approach it right now because... That will deviate you from your mm. your 
what you need to get done yeah. this year, you know, because I'm now jumping around trying to figure out how we can support the time zone issue. What do I need to do in terms of legal docs, you know, and actually focus on where you are, need to be, yeah. even though like it's desperately hard trying to say no to a customer in, mm. in any instance. It's also super enticing to be able to say, oh yeah, we're global now, whatever it is. Um, it's all of these things, it's really, really enticing. But, uh, and it's also sucks to know that they're then gonna go sign up some other platform because you, you have to say no. But I know in the long run, it's the right thing to do. So yeah, I, other markets, other geographies, you know, we'd love to be in the US and in continental Europe for sure. Great stuff. Listen, man, thanks so much for coming out today. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. pleasure to speak to you. Pleasure. We thought put some very interesting things there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thanks for having me, gents, and um, hope the rest of the podcast recordings go well. Thanks, yeah, we'll have you back uh, a couple of years time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully not with another company. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers, guys.